Good morning. I have so looked forward to beginning our study of 1 John with you. When I was praying and researching what to teach after our wonderful study of Hebrews, I came across a note in one of my Hebrew commenta Hebrews commentaries that said that 1 John and Hebrews are often taught together. And I immediately saw why, because they're both about the assurance of our salvation. Hebrews really looks at it from God's standpoint, what he did in and through Christ as our high priest and perfect sacrifice for our sins that assures perfect forgiveness, eternal salvation, and eternal security. What 1 John does, in addition to talking about who Jesus is and what he did for us, it talks about the assurance we can have from the evidence of our salvation in our daily lives. We can be truly confident that we are born again and eternally secure in Christ because of the way we now live. Do we reflect Christ's character of faith, holiness, and Christ's sacrificial love? On a daily basis, that's the question that we'll be answering as we study the letter of 1 John. So this morning, I'd like to begin with a short overview of the letter but before we do, let's open in prayer and commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we are so grateful to be able to begin a new study this Sunday. Your word is endlessly enthralling, encouraging, comforting, strengthening, and yes, challenging, Lord. We want to live lives of holiness and purity lives of obedience, lives of faithful, sacrificial love. We need your help to do this, Father. I thank you that First John gives us a lot of guidance on that. We ask that throughout this course, you would be our vision, Lord, that you would be the heart of our own hearts, our Lord, our leader, our faithful shepherd. Use this time for your glory, Lord. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. John Stott, in his commentary on John's letters, includes a famous story about the Apostle John by Jerome, who is the early church father who is responsible for the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible in the fourth century. And Jerome told the story of, as he called him, John the blessed evangelist, who in extreme old age could no longer walk. And living in Ephesus, he used to be carried into his congregation in the arms of some of his congregation's members. And he was by then unable almost hardly to speak, and he never said anything except little children love one another. And finally, his followers, wearied by his repetition, asked him why he always spoke the same words over and over. Because he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. When we begin studying a new book of the Bible, we always want to step back and get our bearings, don't we? We're really shifting gears here from the book of Hebrews into 1 John. So we wanna answer the questions this morning, who wrote this letter? To whom and when? Where were they? And what was John's purpose in writing? The answers to those questions always help us better understand what we're reading, don't they? First John was a well-known letter in the early church. And early 
apostolic figures like Polycarp, who was John's disciple, cite 1 John in their writings. So this suggests a date of composition no later than the 90s AD, later than the Gospel of John, but before Revelation. And this dovetails with the testimony of the early church fathers who, shortly after 67 AD, wrote that John joined other Christians in leaving Jerusalem prior to the destruction by the Romans of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And John reportedly resumed his apostolic ministry in the vicinity of the great but famously idolatrous city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Western Turkey. He likely wrote 1 John as an elder statesman of the faith, most likely to churches in the surrounding region, which means therefore that it was a circular letter that was meant to be sent to all the churches, not just to one specific congregation. And this group might have included the churches he mentions in the opening chapters of Revelation, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Manuscript evidence is unanimous that this letter was written by the Apostle John. This is not one of the letters in the Bible where there's contention. This is a settled decision. The style and vocabulary of John's gospel and this letter are incredibly similar. First, John is the only gospel writer, and this is interesting. I didn't know this before I was doing research. It's the, he's the only gospel writer to exclusively use the verbal form of believe rather than the, the noun, faith. It's the same word in the Greek, but one's a noun and one's a verb. First John follows suit with nine occurrences of the word believe and only one of faith. And do you know what that suggests to me? I was thinking about the fact that faith is meant to be an active and ongoing part of our daily lives, not just something that's one and done, a one-time event. Second, major themes and emphases overlap between the letter and the gospel. These include Christ's dual nature as God and man without sin, the close relationship between believing and obeying God's commands, and the importance of love as the foremost assurance and evidence of our faith in Christ, just like the story that Jerome told. If we think back over the Gospel of John, we realize how well qualified John was to write both his Gospel account and his three letters on how to live in faithful obedience to Christ. John, remember, was one of the three disciples who witnessed uh, Christ's transfiguration. He's most likely the beloved disciple who reclined next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He stood at the base of the cross when Jesus entrusted his mother to John's care. Along with Peter, he witnessed the empty tomb on the first Easter morning. He saw, spoke with, and ate breakfast with our risen Lord by the lake with the other disciples. He was therefore highly qualified to write about what he and the other disciples had heard, seen, gazed upon, and touched. He was a highly reliable, impeccable, in fact, firsthand witness. John draws upon all that history and all that experience with Christ for over three years as he witnesses, instructs, challenges, and exhorts believers in this magnificent letter. So why did John write his letter? John himself is helpful here. I love it when the authors of the letters do this because he states his purpose in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know 
that you have eternal life. In other words, so Christians may be assured of our salvation in Christ. And John spends the bulk of his letter unpacking and explaining that assurance to us, his readers. So we've seen a bit about John and where he was and why he wrote and even to whom, which was to Christians in the greater Ephesus area and surrounding cities. But what else can we learn about the letter's recipients? What was going on in their lives and why did they need John's particular teachings in this letter? Ephesus, where John relocated after leaving Jerusalem, was one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. It was a political, religious, and commercial center in Asia Minor, and the city played a major role in the spread of the gospel. Now, some of the cities and places mentioned in the Bible are long gone without a trace, like little Colossae that we studied. But the ruins of Ephesus have been extensively excavated, and you can see how massive and well-developed a city it was. When I traveled with Kay Arthur on her, and we retraced the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, we went to the ruins at Ephesus, and we were absolutely blown away. This is the most extensively excavated ancient city that there is. It was a major port in the Roman Empire and had all of the things you associate with a large Roman city, well-built roads, an agora, a marketplace, an amphitheater with seating for 24,000, numerous public buildings, public baths, theaters, magnificent artwork, statues, mosaics. It was incredible to look at these 2,000-year-old mosaics, pictures on the floors of the houses. We walked on the same roads that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John would have walked on. We sat in the same theater that the Apostle uh, Paul would have taught in. It was amazing. The acoustics are so good in that amphitheater that K. Arthur, Arthur taught the book of Ephesians without a microphone. We could hear every word. The scene you've probably seen in Ephesus that you know from the pictures, the photographs, is the ancient library at Ephesus. They just have the facade now, but it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Now, and under the Romans, Ephesus thrived and reached the pinnacle of its greatness during the first and second centuries after Christ. And in the Apostle Paul and John's era, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the world with an estimated population of a quarter of a million people. Being such a large and important Roman city, it was also a melting pot for religions and cults. We've seen this before, haven't we? Ephesus was renowned as a particularly idolatrous city on the same level as, say, ancient Babylon or e ancient Egypt. A significant number of the city's occupants would have worshipped at the temple of Artemis, whom the Romans called Diana. This temple to Diana was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. The cult of Diana or Artemis would have predominated, but there would have been numerous other religions in the city, including Judaism and spin-off cults from Judaism and Christianity. And although scholars aren't sure which cults the Apostle John is referring to in his letter, it's obvious that he's not only writing to encourage and to teach about Christ and active faith in him, 
He's also writing against the false teaching that the believers were being bombarded with. It used to be customary to assume that 1 John was a response to a cult that plagued the early church in the second to fifth centuries called Gnosticism. But scholars in the past 40 years have ruled that out here because the Gnostic heresy didn't begin until the second century. And our New Testament was closed, the canon was closed is what we say, at the end of the first century. We'll talk more about this later uh, when we get to John's argument against the false teaching in chapter two. But we do know that John was writing to Christians who had witnessed an exodus from their church. John says in 2.19, he talks about the people who went out from us, but they were not of us. Shortly before John wrote this letter, scholars believe that some of the more talented or intellectual members of the congregations had withdrawn from the fellowship to found a new one. In other words, they split off from the church. But we know that John's letter isn't just about dealing with a schism in the ancient congregations from false teaching, far from it. His tone, it's like Paul in Philippians. It's affectionate, it's warm, it's personal. The letter is filled with verses that we love and have learned by, from, by heart from years ago. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you grateful? that that's a verse we can never use up or wear out? 3.1, see what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 3.2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 311, and this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 318, which is my favorite verse in the book. Little children, let us not love only with word or deed, but with actions and in truth. In other words, don't just tell someone you love them. Show it with practical deeds of kindness and help. 47, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 419, we love because God first loved us. 54, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is the victory. Remember, we don't fight for victory in the Christian life. We fight from victory. We stand in the victory that our Lord won over death, hell, and the grave at Calvary. 5, 11 to 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. When I was a young adult, a friend and I did a Bible study together from the Navigators called Growing in Christ. It's a wonderful little study, and it had 13 lessons, and it included several on assurance of our salvation. And this scripture First uh, John 5, 11 to 12, was one of those that we looked at and we memorized for the assurance of our salvation. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. So let me ask you, where do you stand with respect to these verses? Do you have the son of God? 
Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and died on the cross for your sins? Have you committed your life to him in believing faith? If you do and you have, when was the last time you said thank you? Will you do that today? In our remaining time this morning, let's take a brief look at John's objectives in his letter. Not just because it's important to correctly understand so we appropriately apply and obey God's word to us, but because the problems that John faced in his day are strikingly like problems we face today. And the objectives that John sets out are objectives that you and I need to have in our Christian walk as well, if we're to grow in grace and faithful witness. He's answering questions in his letter like these. Can believers have genuine fellowship with a God that they can't see? Unlike the gigantic temple of Diana that you could see from all over the city. What does sin do to a believer's fellowship with our Heavenly Father? That's an important one, isn't it? Is it important to believe that Jesus had a real human body and literally died on the cross, that he's God and man? What is the mark of a true child of God? What is the mark of a true child of the devil? How can believers live up to God's command for righteousness inside and out? Those are incredibly relevant and timely questions, aren't they? And maybe I included one that you may have asked in the past. Those believe, that believers can know that we are children of God isn't a teaching that's unique to John's letters, of course, but it's clearly one that needed to be stated forcefully in his day. Earlier, Paul had written of the Christian's assurance to those in Thessalonica. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.5. The author of Hebrews wrote, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. That's Hebrews 10.21-22. Uh, in Colossians, Paul wrote that we should be encouraged in heart and united in love so that we may have the full riches of complete understanding so that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, Colossians 2.2. Isaiah in 32.17 wrote that the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. When we put these phrases together, we find that God intends for Christians to have a full conviction and settled assurance of faith so that we have complete understanding. And this is to be true forever for all Christians throughout history. But the 20th and the 21st century so far have been epochs of fundamental insecurity. Haven't you found that? Everything seems to be constantly changing. Nothing seems stable. Even the Christian church, which has received a kingdom which cannot be shaken and is charged to pro proclaim him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, now often speaks its message softly, shyly, maybe even without conviction. There's a widespread distrust of dogmatism and a seeming preference for agnosticism and free thought. Many church members are filled with uncertainty and confusion. That's from John Stott's commentary. Against this background, 
to read the letter of John is to enter into another world entirely, for its marks are assurance, knowledge, confidence, and boldness. According to John, a Christian can know first that Christianity is true. This is an objective or historical certainty. And that he or she is a Christian. We can know that. That's subjective or personal uh, certainty. The message of John's first letter is that this double assurance is right, necessary, and normal for Christian people. Christians can know if they possess eternal life, John writes, and he gives us three practical tests by which to settle the matter. And these are one of the most famous parts of the first letter of 1 John. John Stott calls these the moral test, the test of righteousness or obedience, the social test, the test of love, and the doctrinal test, the test of belief in Jesus Christ. And the evidence of these three things will be ongoing parts of our daily lives if we truly know Christ. Their presence in our thoughts and actions reveal the genuineness and affirm our salvation. And you and I will spend the following weeks here unpacking these because John's objective isn't just that we're assured of our salvation, but that we keep growing in Christ-likeness, which will be seen by our obedience, faith, and love. One more thought. John gives us five major emphases in his letter that apply to us today. These are absolutely true and imperative for us. The first emphasis is John's insistence on the truth and value of the original gospel or the old gospel, as he calls it, as opposed to new or modern alternatives to it. We need to keep preaching, teaching, studying, meditating on memorizing and sharing the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of the incarnate son of God, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God his Father. On this point, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, in London wrote, the old truth that Calvin preached, that Augustine preached, is the truth that I must preach today, or else be false to my conscience and my God. Listen to this next sentence, because this is, I think, incredibly applicable. I cannot shade the truth. I know of no such thing as paring off the rough edges of a doctrine. John Knox's gospel is my gospel. That which thundered through Scotland must thunder through England again. This should be the desire of every Christian's life in every period in history, including ours. The second message is that of the historical Christ, God-man, without whom Christianity would be cease to be Christianity. What we believe about Jesus is neither optional nor an exercise in creative thinking. Unlike the relative who told me, we believe the Bible means whatever we want it to mean. No, I wish you could say, see the size of the font on my paper on that one. The Bible means, the gospel means what God says it means, right? This is true. We use God's dictionary as well as his vocabulary. If Jesus did not really come in the flesh and die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven from whence he shall come again, then Christianity is stripped 
of its essential doctrines and its power. That would mean that there would be no sure revelation of God, no atonement for sin, no hope of life beyond the grave, and no future either for the world or for us as individuals. Without the historical Christ and his finished work as our great high priest and perfect sacrifice, there is nothing. But with the message of our beloved Jesus, we have a sure and life-changing message for the world. Third, we know, as I just talked about, that we live in an uncertain and confused world. But into this world, Christianity breathes a note of certainty. According to John, a Christian can know that Christianity is true and if we're a Christian or not. Fourth, John teaches that righteousness must characterize the life of those who claim to be Christian. First John 1 John 1.5, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. John's letter, therefore, offers a continuing challenge to you and I. Do our lives show evidence of God's presence? Finally, John stresses the need for Christians to let all that we do be characterized by love. This indeed is the mark of the Christian, as, as the late Francis Schaeffer wrote. Are our lives, are our homes, is our church characterized by love? Are we known as people who love? John also recorded Christ's words in his gospel in John 13, 35. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do we want others to come to faith in Jesus Christ? then you and I must love. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love and worship you, and we desire to live lives of radiant faith, obedience, and love. Thank you for the assurances of our faith in Jesus Christ. Empower us by your gracious Holy Spirit to make of us people who love the truth of your word, who love righteousness and who love one another in the world for your sake. From the bottoms of our feet to the tops of our heads, make us people who deeply love one another. Because it is your command. And when this is done in Christ and for Christ, it is enough. Please use our study of 1 John to powerfully transform our lives into closer and closer images of your son. For we ask this in his powerful and perfect name, and we thank you. Amen.